This is a big deal in the future of work is the rapid change in pace at which we will need to reskill in order to be viable in the future of work. So clearly there's gonna be a lot of equity and inclusion implications in this. And a lot of the static skill sets that used to be a big deal when I was graduating college, I graduated college in uh, 2001. Uh, if I think about the skill sets that were being messaged at me as like, ooh, this is what you need to be successful to be in the world of work. And then I look at this list, I'm not seeing a lot of overlap there. So in 20 years, between 2001 and 2021, just in my time being post undergrad, much of what would be normative skill sets for me have already been rendered obsolete, just to prove the point here. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. If you were unable to catch this year's virtual Future of Work Conference 2021 presented by Pasadena City College, then you can catch up right now with today's episode featuring the conference keynote Vijay Pendicure, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Zynga, as he distills the subject of DEI thoroughly with data to leverage. Pendicure's actionable look at where we've been, where we are, and how to approach where we're headed is equally realistic and hopeful. We hope you enjoy this excerpt from the Future of Work Conference 2021. Let's get started. Welcome to the 2021 Future of Work virtual conference presented by Pasadena City College. And our host for the day, Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director, Pasadena City College Economic and Workforce Development. Welcome to our third annual Future of Work conference. It is a pleasure to be with you once again for what promises to be a meaningful discussion on the intersection of workforce development, equity, inclusion, and diversity. This conference furthers a discussion that began in 2019 with the important question of how can we better serve our students, our regional employers, and community as we consider the future of work. This year, our focus is on diving into dialogue, into equity and inclusion, and integrating best practices and models on diversity. I am very excited to be welcoming a key member of the Pasadena City College leadership team to this year's conference, Dr. Carrie Bolin, Associate Vice President, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, Title IX Coordinator for Pasadena City College. Dr. Bolin has been instrumental in the design of our event today. Good morning, Dr. Bolin. 
Good morning, Salvatrice, and thank you. It is wonderful to be here in partnership with you as we center the work of equity and inclusion as not only valuable and important, but as an imperative. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing a champion for diversity, Pasadena City College's superintendent, President Dr. Erica Andrejanis, who is here with us this morning to share a few remarks. Welcome, Dr. Andrejanis. Thank you, Dr. Boland, for introducing me this morning. It is my pleasure to welcome all of you here for the third Future of Work Conference from our fabulous Economic and Workforce Development Program. When people think about the California Community College system, what often comes to mind is transferring students to the UC, CSU, and to private institutions across the country. However, that is only 50% of the mission of the California Community College system. In fact, the other 50% of our mission is economic and workforce development. And conferences like this one are one of the many ways that we fulfill that part of our mission. Now, when we say future of work, we're certainly not pretending that we have a crystal ball and we'll tell you what the future holds in terms of specific careers or industries necessarily. In this context, we are actually talking about the future of working, the future of workers, and the future of the workplace. Because the theme this year is centered around equity and introducing an equity lens to the world of work. Why is this important? Well, because the workers of tomorrow are not the workers of 60 years ago, or 40 years ago, or of 20 years ago, or even five years ago. The workplace is much more diverse in terms of employee and employer backgrounds in terms of generations, in terms of experience, and equally important, the workplace is more diverse in terms of skills, both the skills employers need and the skills employees bring with them. I am confident among the fabulous lineup of speakers, there's something for everyone in this morning's conference. I encourage you, whether you are a potential employee, an employer, or an educator, or just an interested community member, to listen with an open mind, and to look for those nuggets of information and inspiration. Now, you're probably asking yourselves what PCC is doing about equity. I'm happy to share that equity informs everything we do as a college. It is the cornerstone of our college mission, and I quote, Pasadena City College is an equity-minded learning community dedicated to enriching students' academic, personal, and professional lives through an array of degree and certificate programs, campus engagement, and customized student support. Almost three years ago, when I arrived at PCC, I articulated my goal for PCC to be the first community college in California to meet the state chancellor's vision for success goal to close 100% of success or achievement gaps, which in a practical sense means that 100% of PCC students who enter the college will meet their educational goals, regardless of their background, their race, their ethnicity, their gender or sexuality, or you get the picture. We can do that if we focus on equity. And in the context of this conference, it is imperative that we explore what achieving equity in the workplace really means. Again, welcome to the Future of Work Conference. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrejonis. You're absolutely right that this work is at our community colleges is 50% of what we do is workforce development. And thank you for acknowledging that. 
And I have to just take a pause and take a brief moment and really thank you personally for always championing uh, this work and supporting our work, not only in, in, in my area in, uh, with economic and workforce development, but in Carrie, uh, Dr. Boland's area as well. And I just wanted to take a brief moment and thank you for that because your leadership provides a space for creativity and growth. And for that, we sincerely thank you. You are quite welcome. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce our Future of Work keynote speaker, Dr. Vijay Pendiker. Dr. Pendiker serves as the inaugural Vice President and Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at Zynga Incorporated, where he offers diversity, strategy and coordination for their global operations spanning three continents. In addition to leading the diversity function, Vijay also leads university relations, corporate social responsibility, and learning and development at Zynga. Prior to this appointment, he led campus-wide crisis management and diversity efforts at Cornell University as the Robert W. and Elizabeth Staley Dean of Students and Presidential Advisor on Diversity and Equity. Before Cornell, Dr. Pendiker served in leadership roles at universities across the country with a consistent focus on student success and equity design strategy. In addition, Dr. Pendiker serves on the Institute Teaching Faculty of the USC Race and Equity Center and as a faculty member for the High Impact Practices Institute through the American Association of Colleges and Universities. Dr. Pendiker, thank you for joining us. We are very excited to hear your keynote. The floor is yours. Thank you so much for that warm introduction, Salvatrice. It's a pleasure to work with you and the Pasadena City College community today. Um, I also want to extend my gratitude to Leslie Thompson and Carrie Bolin for inviting me to be a part of today's important discussion on the future of work. So I wanted to begin my keynote with a story, actually, about uh, a group of workers uh, from the 16th and 17th centuries in the United Kingdom and in Europe. The group of workers that I'm referring to are called croppers. And croppers were, uh, were a highly skilled set of artisans in 16th and 17th century Europe that smoothed out wool to be made into stockings for the European aristocracy and nobility. Croppers were really well compensated for their technical skill. They actually made three times the, the income of the, of the craftsmen who assembled the stockings from the smooth wool. So this was a really special skill set that took a long time to train and build for over time. And the croppers enjoyed a really strong quality of life as a result of having this specialty skill set and a high salary. Most croppers, according to the archival record, only chose to work about three days a week. Sounds pretty amazing. Um, so why am I starting a future of work keynote with a story about a group of wool workers from the 16th and 17th centuries? Well, croppers went on to be the, become the people we've that history remembers as the Luddites. And Luddites were a group of workers who ended up attacking factories and sabotaging technology and machinery. This is what they're known for in the historical record, right? People who were anti-technology and distrustful of technology, and therefore they destroyed it. I think that the story has been told in a way that doesn't actually do the croppers any justice, because if you dig into the historical record, what you start to see is that 
the croppers ended up becoming Luddites because their entire way of life became threatened due to technological change. And so if we really dig into the details here, what we'll start to see is a group of people who were working and had an extraordinarily high quality of life. And then due to sociocultural changes in the 17th century in the United Kingdom, the owners of the textile uh, operations uh, invested in technology that eliminated the cropper's jobs. And so all of a sudden the croppers went from having a great quality of life to actually having no careers whatsoever. And the croppers not only lost their role, but the new roles that were created in the textile factories as the result of technological disruption and new machinery were really undesirable. The new textile jobs involved 14 hour working days, really unsafe and unhealthy working conditions. And the level of skill necessary on the part of the laborers to work alongside the machines was much lower than what the croppers used to have to train for. And so labor became seen as replaceable and expendable. And there was very little interest on part of the owners of the factories to invest in working conditions and fair pay. Before the croppers became Luddites, before they started calling themselves Luddites, and attacking machinery, they actually tried bargaining with the factory owners. And again, this has been lost in the tides of history. But if you look at their, their requests, one of the things they asked for is not that the machines go away. They understood that the machines were part of the transformation that they were living through. Um, part of what they asked for is that the newly created profits from automation be distributed more equitably across the different groups affected by this moment of disruption. Another thing that they asked for is that the industrialists slow down the adoption of the machines in ways that allowed the labor force to reskill and upskill so that they could still find themselves useful in this new economy. And a third thing that they asked for in their negotiations with the industrialists was for per perhaps a tax to be levied on finished textile products that could generate a pool of resources that could be used to support the vast impoverishment of textile workers' families that occurred in this moment of disruption. If you think about some of what they're asking for, it's tough to tell that we're in the 1800s and not the 21st century right now. When for me, I wanted to start a, a, a keynote on the future of work by looking backwards at a moment of technological disruption, because for several reasons, one, I've got an undergraduate and graduate degrees in history, and I truly believe that humans can continue to learn from past experiences as they face future challenges. And this is a moment where we need every bit of wisdom that we can marshal. Second, I think that the Luddites have been cast incorrectly as anti-technology simpletons that went about destroying machines that made them feel uncomfortable. And that isn't an accurate capture of the historical record. And the same kind of reductive hot take is happening right now to people who are trying to raise fundamental issues of human rights, human dignity, and social justice in the massive technological disruptions that we're living through that are shaping the future of work. So I do think that there's some strong parallels between the moment that I was referencing in the opening story and what we're going through right now. On a personal level, I see a tension that has to be named here between the some of the actual productive possibilities that technology offers us right now around the future of work, and also some really disturbing and concerning trends that have to be explored as well. And so I wanted to start by looking at technological disruption as a source of transformation and change, and also something that needs 
care and attention from people that care about equity and inclusion. We have to lean in in this moment and exert shaping influence because while I think the transformation is somewhat inevitable, I think that we folks who are who are uh, who care about equity and inclusion can actually take a step forward and try and shape the transformation so that marginalized and vulnerable communities can be better served by the future of work. All right. So that being said, one way that the future of work is oftentimes cast popularly is a very sunny interpretation of the future of work. Workers have been indicating since 2019, before the pandemic, workers were already asking for increased flexibility over when they work, where they work, and how they work. There's numerous charts that point to that, right? And so when when we try and think about the the massive change that happened in knowledge workers suddenly going into hybrid and remote work settings during the pandemic, we, we actually can see this as an acceleration of trends and desires that were already in place before the pandemic. And as we uh, look at this potentially sunny future, this uh, positive characterization of the transformation we're living through, many things rise to the surface, but I'll point out two in the interest of time. One is that greater flexibility tied up in the future of work allows people to balance things in their lives. For people who have family obligations, community obligations that they're trying to strike a balance with, having control over when you work and when you do your job can offer you enough flexibility to maybe stay in the workforce when historically you might have had to step back from the workforce. So there's a positive opportunity there. I think there's another positive opportunity in the shift around where work is happening. So as companies consider more and more hybrid and remote uh, work possibilities, they're actually hiring workers in lucrative jobs that historically would never have been considered for those roles because they didn't want to live in a tier one geographic market, LA, San Francisco, Boston, DC, Chicago. There was, there was 10 cities that really were overrepresenting where the kind of the gains of the last 20 to 30 years of the labor market were being distributed. And suddenly there's a really sunny moment here, potentially, if, if hybrid and remote work expand the gains of these lucrative knowledge sector jobs into parts of the workforce that live in parts of the country that don't, that historically have been excluded from these gains. So that's a sunny interpretation of the future of work. Going forward, I think that the other interpretation of the future of work that is popularly talked about is really cloudy, right? And uh, this is one capture of one of those cloudy elements from McKinsey, an estimation based off of a rapid automation scenario planning exercise that McKinsey went through to see potentially in the next nine years, how many jobs might be eliminated globally by automation. When we think about automation, I also think it's important to think of this as a big umbrella and think about automation, AI, machine learning, robots, all as all part of this disruptive trend line that technology could, could potentially bring to bear. And the cloudy interpretation of the future of work here is very dystopian, right? Much like the Luddites, the croppers who became Luddites faced, there's a chance that technology in the future of work eliminates hundreds of millions of jobs globally, if not even more. And this cloudy interpretation is something that we have to grapple with as well. So we've got a very sunny interpretation that frequently gets media coverage. We've got a very cloudy interpretation that frequently gets media coverage. And I think that for, for those of us that are trying to be in the mix and affect equity and inclusion outcomes, it's important to recognize that there are hopeful and productive possibilities and very concerning and very disturbing possibilities all at work, all at the same time in this, this transformation that we're living through right now. One of the ways that I characterize 
the, the moment that we're in now and actually the moment that we've been in is something is a term that I see frequently in the business literature called VUCA. And um, importantly to note again that VUCA was being used in the literature before the pandemic. And what VUCA means is volatility. It refers to conditions, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and, um, and when things are ambiguous. And so in the business literature several years ago, you saw the rise of this acronym that the conditions in across number of sectors in, in the world of work are increasingly VUCA. They're increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I think that, again, from, from my, my role as a keynote speaker today is to help kind of contextualize what's going on right now. And there's a tendency to ascribe every upheaval that we're living through just to the pandemic right now, but actually much of the transformation in the future of work was already in flux before the pandemic. It's accelerated because of the pandemic, but conditions were already volatile, uncertain, and complex and ambiguous even before the pandemic. And things got more VUCA in the last 18 months, as I think we all know in our personal lives and in, in our work, right, as well. So in the face of that broader context, what, I'm, what I intend to do over the next 30 minutes of this keynote or, or so is to map out three interlocking phenomena for you. When I think about the future of work, there's so many different ways that I could have structured this keynote speech, but I'm going to really drill in on hybrid work as a working style or, or a mode of working, skill extinction, which I'll explain more about over the course of the next few minutes, and wellness. And in each of these focal points for this keynote, I'm going to be looking at employer concerns, employee concerns, and equity implications. Almost all of us can identify either as an employer or an employee, and some of us can identify as both of those categories. When we think about equity implications in the three pillars that I'm choosing to focus in on on the future of work, the hybrid work, skill extinction, and wellness, it's important to unpack these both from the employer perspective and the employee perspective. So this is sort of the, the logic model for, uh, for the keynote today. And I want to uh, name the caveat that this is not an attempt to be comprehensive. There's no way in one uh, keynote speech that we can capture every trend or every aspect of what's happening in the future of work. But what I'm hoping is that as I go through and unpack these three areas, hybrid work, skill extinction, and wellness, that I'm actually modeling a way of thinking about problems and opportunities in the future of work that can be applied more generally to other parts of the future of work. And I'm also hoping to model an application of equity-mindedness that can be useful for us as we lean in and try and shape this great transformation so that marginalized and vulnerable communities are better served in the future. Before I jump into that three-part model, I, I want to take a second to actually explain what I mean by equity. I'm going to use the term over and over and over again, so I can't skip the part of defining the term. There's so much I can say on this. There's a whole keynote in just unpacking what equity means, particularly in differentiating what equity means when compared to the term equality. I can't spend the whole, whole keynote on this, so I'm going to give you the 30,000-foot flyby roughshod explanation, but you can Google and dive into the equity literature. There's so much written on this subject. For the purpose of our time together today, I want to name that equity is different than equality. And I have to always make that clear for audiences because we live in a society that tends to use those terms interchangeably, even though they're very different. Equality is the aspiration and premise that things will get better if we treat everyone the same. 
to be really reductive about this, right? Things will get better if we treat everyone the same. It's a super important idea. It's baked into the founding principles of American democracy. It's something this country has aspired towards, not achieved, but aspired towards for centuries. And it's not a principle to be lost in the shuffle. It's, it's an important one. But equity is actually very different. Equity is about the idea that if we wanna optimize chances for people to flourish in complex systems, schools, the world of work, hospital settings, anywhere that's a complex system, if we wanna optimize conditions for people to flourish, we actually have to treat people and groups differently. Equity is the principle that optimizing for outcomes requires differential treatment based on a couple of realities. One is that we have differential starting places. And just because everybody is working at your company or everybody is a student at your campus doesn't mean they all started from the same place. So we need differential investments to accommodate for differential starting points. Similarly, the system itself doesn't affect everybody in the same way. We live and work and school and grow in complex systems that norm and privilege some individuals and groups, and they disadvantage and oppress other individuals and groups. And so in order to accommodate for differential starting points and the fact that systems affect people differently, equity is the principle that we actually have to invest differently in different people and communities to optimize their chances of flourishing. I know that that was like the, the, this two-minute flyby, but hopefully that gives you a framework as I continue to use that word equity, what I mean by that. And then so going forward, let me try and bring that, that concept into a quick examination of some of the key concerns in hybrid work, the first part of the logic model of this talk. Hybrid work is refers to the working conditions where some of your work happens in an office or in a workspace, and some of your work happens away from that office or workspace, right? So whether that be your home or a third space, but hybrid work is the blending of your productivity inside of the formal workspace and outside of that formal workspace. I want to name that about a third of the American workforce right now works in industries and occupations that don't have any hybrid work, right? And I, and I don't want my lack of focus on that to be an omission. I want to acknowledge that hospitality, manufacturing, travel, there's so many industries that, that hybrid isn't a thing. But I wanted to focus in on hybrid work because, two, because the early workforce data shows that about two thirds of the American workforce will have at least some portion of their work going forward be hybrid, be blended so that their productivity is happening inside and outside of the formal office setting. So in, in to acknowledge that and to focus in on that, um, I, I will be talking about that portion of the American workforce that will be profoundly affected by this permanent shift towards hybrid being the new norm. And there's so many aspects of hybrid work to address, but to illustrate that way of thinking that I wanted to uh, dive deeper on, I'm just going to pick a couple that really rise to the top of the literature on hybrid work and the future of work. So one aspect that we should think about is what the literature calls consistency. The, the trend in the literature around consistency is that this isn't everybody's reality. I know for me as a parent of two small children that my hybrid working experience oftentimes involves some level of balancing, trying to do my best work while also trying to parent and deal with a sick child or deal with my daughters fighting with each other or whatever else is happening in the house. Many of us are blending in ways that we never expected blending. And this creates inconsistency in the conditions of all of the work that happens outside of the office environment. And so while hybrid work implies that maybe some of your work happens at the office, 
but all of the work that's happening outside of the office is going to be really inconsistent. And the fault lines of that inconsistency are going to track along privilege and disadvantage. More privileged groups are going to be able to accommodate for hybrid work in ways that support hybrid working. They're going to be able to, people are going to buy a bigger house so they can have a home office or hire a nanny so that someone's with the kids or get all new technology so that you're showing up your best, right? And more disadvantaged groups are going to struggle to figure out how to do their best work in these new conditions. So this is a, a concern called consistency in the literature. I'm gonna talk about how to respond to these concerns in a second, but let me map out a few concerns. So another concern in the literature is called serendipity. Now, as a child of the 1980s, I spent a lot of time watching the, the television show Cheers with my family, probably seen every episode of the show. And the whole plot of Cheers, for those of you that are not Gen Xers, um, revolves around people meeting in a bar in Boston and having some hilarious and fun and loving and tender moments based on serendipity based on who walks into the bar in that specific moment. When people talk about serendipity in the future of work, a key concern is that as more and more of the work is not happening in the office, the chances that people will accidentally bump into each other and have that aha moment that produces innovation, a great idea, a solution, right? And if you think about your own work or your own studies, if you identify as somebody who's in school still, Sometimes we, we have our best moments of brilliance and productivity in ways that we didn't plan based on who we physically encounter that produces that innovation curve. There's deep concerns about the loss of serendipity in the future of work literature because being hybrid, if any of you have worked all day on Zoom, it's only intentional meetings. There's very little unintentional. There's very little serendipity. So the threats here are around innovation, creativity, and the loss of, of some of those aha moments. Going forward, another concern that rises to the top of the hybrid work literature is called visibility. A huge part of what how managers and leaders have been trained in the last 100 years comes from visibility. We've generally worked physically around the people that we lead. And so we're able to have direct line of sight into their culture of work, their interactional culture, the problems and opportunities that they have, what they struggle with, how they express joy. When people are working away from each other, we lose that line of sight. Leadership loses that line of sight into their, the way work is happening. This is called the visibility crisis. And where this may start to show up is in increasingly flat-footed or tone-deaf moments where leadership is distanced or alienated from the realities of what their workforce is thinking and feeling. Because if you're not regularly rubbing elbows with the workforce, then there's a chance that you're missing out on the contextual clues that can inform your leadership in ways that are deeply attuned to the workforce. So there's a potential crisis of visibility. And this is the last trend I'll point out in hybrid work, which is called proximity bias. This is a big one in the DEI circles and the diversity, equity, inclusion circles. Proximity bias is the tendency for people to reward that which is right in front of their face. And the further you are from one's proximity, the less you come up in their mind and the less rewards you get. So the way this would work in hybrid work is that the workers who happen to be around the manager more often Maybe they're in office more. Maybe they live near the office and they can drive in or maybe whatever working arrangements give them greater exposure to the manager. Proximity bias would lead us to believe that the, the data will start to show that they're getting more raises, more promotions, more stretch assignments, better networking opportunities. And the workers that are more remote 
more hybrid or more distant from the manager will suffer from the proximity bias by not getting those promotions and those stretch assignments and the networking advantages. If you combine this with the early labor market data that seems to indicate that women, people of color, people with disabilities, veterans, low-income folks are going to be overrepresented in remote working scenarios. Like, do you remember when I said the sunny side, the sunny interpretation of the future of work is that companies will start hiring people they historically have excluded because they're going to hire folks in the middle of the country. They're going to hire folks in rural areas. They're going to hire folks in urban centers where people of color have historically not been able to get these kinds of lucrative knowledge economy jobs. Well, those workers, if they're not going into the office, then proximity bias will slowly start to create an equity gap for them. And this is something that translates really well also into educational settings when we're looking at blended models where there's a certain amount of learners that are on campus and there's a certain amount of learners that are distance learners. And oftentimes this proximity bias favors the on-campus learners in, in, a multiple, uh, in multiple ways. So the final concern that I can name for you in the time that I have here today in hybrid work is called proximity bias. What do we do practically as we, as we go to respond to this? Let me cover a few. This is, this is the way that the, 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 the talk is designed. So there's, I've shared some concerns with hybrid work with you. Well, what do we do about that? I have a few ideas. This is not meant to be comprehensive, but I mean, let me rip through a few of these. On the employer side. So for those of you who identify as employers, who have the ability to affect the workforce setting, a couple of things to think about. One, how do we leverage technology and our physical facilities to affect greater inclusion and creativity? So there are two quick examples on the technology side. One is a creative collaboration tool. This is not meant to be an endorsement of a specific tool, but rather an illustration. There's a tool called Miro that we use at my company. Miro is a collaborative whiteboarding tool that allows people to get together and recreate some of the creative dynamics that happen when you're in person standing in front of a whiteboard. And people can be writing on that board at the same time. They can be pinning or, or taping or magnetically uh, you know, putting things up on the side of the board, right? So Miro is a, is a very simple technology that allows creative teams to ideate and process in, in similar ways that they did when they were physically in the conference room together. By adopting a tool like Miro or something similar, if you're worried about serendipity and the loss of serendipity affecting your creativity curve at your organization, there's a way to think about technology as a possible unlock there. Similarly, there's other software, like we use a tool called Donut at, at my organization. There's other tools that do this as well, but Donut is a spontaneous networking tool. So if, if I sign up to be a part of Donut, everybody who signs up to be a part of Donut indicates how frequently they'd like to be in a Donut meeting. And then Donut automatically organizes virtual coffees for you with one or two or three other people, putting you into the spontaneous, connective, networky kind of meeting with somebody in your organization for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just as a chance to rub elbows and get to know someone that you might not in your average and everyday workflow. Uh, on the other side, there's technology interventions that we can do to try and deal with the concerns in hybrid work. There's also facilities uh, interventions. I don't have the time to map out every one, but I, I want to urge you, if you have the ability to affect facilities and design within your world of work, to think about the universal design principle of designing for the margins to benefit everyone, including the center. And what that would mean in a facilities redesign is if you have the chance to rethink, let's say a conference room, you would actually redesign the entire conference room around the experience of remote workers because the people who happen to be physically in the conference room will always be fine. But what is the experience of the people who are displaced by remote work? And how do we bring in technologies that allow them to fully 
and meaningfully participate in that conference room, as opposed to the way it is right now. If you've ever been the one person on the screen and everybody else is in the room, it's a pretty terrible experience. So we need a complete inversion of the design logic of our physical facilities if we want to edge towards fuller inclusion of remote and distance and hybrid workers. Again, a couple of other quick things that employers can think about. Um, any of you who have uh, pay equity reviews. Pay equity reviews are annualized processes within companies that look at salaries and promotion schedules, oftentimes disaggregated by race or gender to make sure that these key variables, are, you know, that women and people of color are not being discriminated against or left behind as people get increasing pay amounts. And pay equity reviews result in adjustments, meaning people actually get brought up levels in response to pay equity gaps. Responsible organizations conduct pay equity reviews. I think a potential investment going forward for organizations that have a lot of hybrid work is going to be to include the person's working style as part of pay equity review. So not only will we be tracking gender, we'll be tracking race, but we also might be tracking whether you're in office, whether you're remote, or whether you're in a blended model of hybrid, because this is a factor that might lead to some people being promoted more often or other people being given less raises. It's we need to gather the data if we're going to act on it. As we set up all these rules and systems and structures at the employer level, I always want to remind people that you need good protocols and processes, but we also want to uh, allow for flexibility. And if an employee says to you, look, I know that I am not supposed to come into the office more than two days a week in our new model, but I cannot do good work at home for these reasons, to have some sort of a way for people to file a hardship uh, application to work in the office all the time, if that's a possibility, because you're going to retain your workforce, you're going to get your best work out of people by being flexible. On the opposite side, just two quick recommendations for employees to, be, to, to do their best work in hybrid. One is to replace old school networking with building a board of directors. And what I mean by this is old school networking is meeting a lot of people. Strategic old school networking was meeting people who can do things for you, right? In your network, you might have people who are the same level as you, people who are above you. You might have someone with sponsorship power. You might have somebody who helps you get into your next job or into a different industry when you're trying to pivot. The advice around what, how to deal with the loss of networking capacity when we move into hybrid work as, the, as a new and future norm is to think about your network as your board of directors with very strategic seats. Rather than saying, hey, look at my LinkedIn, I have 5,000 people in my network. That's a very difficult network to activate on any kind of strategic level. The alternative is to say, on my board of directors, I have six seats. So this allows you in a hybrid working setting to not rely on casual interactions to build a broad group of people who you know, which is the old school version of network, but rather intentional seeking and finding and making of a board of directors with much smaller seats to actually help you achieve strategic goals in career management. There's a lot more written about this online. You can Google how to build your own personal board of directors, and there's great articles out there about it. But let me go forward and start to explore the next concept in the future of work, which is skill extinction, right? And skill extinction is the is the trend in the literature that is about the rate at which skills that the workforce has right now are going to become obsolete going forward. This is a big deal in the future of work is the rapid change in pace at which we will need to reskill in order to be viable in the future of work. So clearly there's going to be a lot of equity and inclusion implications in this. And one way to think about skill extinction is 
the result of Gartner looking at over seven and a half million job postings for S&P 100 companies between 2018 and 2021 in IT finance and sales. And what they saw are two trends. One is a pretty significant increase in the number of skills being required for these roles. And then two, a pretty big shift in the number of skills that are being are dropping off of the required list, meaning they're becoming obsolete, right? So there's not only an increasing demand for new skills, but old skills that used to be really central are disappearing. And so this is part of the skill extinction curve, rapid change towards new and the obsolescence of the old. So where's this all coming from? Well, part of this goes back to the cloudy interpretation of the future of work, the robot revolution, right? This is uh, from the World Economic Forum's Future of Jobs report from 2018. So remember, pre-pandemic here, all of this was in motion before the pandemic. It's just accelerated now. And one of the things that the the, uh, World Economic Forum wants to bring to light on this is the increasing adoption of robots in industries that we might not think of robots playing a big role in, but they will play a bigger and bigger role. And when you add in other forms of automation, AI, machine learning, then you start to see where the rapid change in skill sets is coming from. Because part of what we will be trying to do as humans, and this I know this sounds very dystopian, but it's it's a boil down of what's, of what's in the literature, is we're really going to be trying to stay ahead of the job elimination curve. As machines continue to do more and more jobs that are currently held by humans, how do we stay viable in this labor market? We're going to need to reskill frequently. I know that's not a very sunny picture, and that's why equity and inclusion advocates have to be in there advocating for humans against the the, the sort of uh, steady march of industrial quote unquote progress. If you look at what they're highlighting as 10 emerging skill sets, you can look at these and you go, wow, okay, A lot of the static skill sets that used to be a big deal when I was graduating college, I graduated college in uh, 2001. Uh, If I think about the skill sets that were being messaged at me as like, oh, this is what you need to be successful to be in the world of work. And then I look at this list, not seeing a lot of overlap there. So in 20 years, between 2001 and 2021, just in my time being post undergrad, much of what would be normative skill sets for me have already been rendered obsolete, just to prove the point here. Again, also, I wouldn't be a good DEI person if I didn't point out that the World Economic Forum is not a neutral actor on this. Not only are they generating reports and talking about the future of automation and job elimination, but they're actually shaping an agenda that benefits big tech and big industry over marginalized and vulnerable communities all the time. And so, you know, I just, I would, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that they have a stake in this game and it's a stake that doesn't sit on the side of vulnerable communities. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Well, quick pass over over uh, investing in equity for a skill ex- uh, when when dealing with the curve of skill extinction. Again, I started with the premise that we probably cannot stop the tides of history, but we can exert some shaping influence. So on the employer side, we have to get out of the mindset as employers of saying, "Well, have they done this exact thing before?" That's super problematic because one, it just constantly discriminates against people who haven't gotten the opportunity to start. And if any of you, and I know I've been in this place, if any of you have ever wanted to do something new and constantly been told, well, we can't hire you to do this thing because you haven't done it already. And then you're sitting there frustrated at home going, well, how am I supposed to get the skill and the experience you want me to have without being given a chance? This is an age old problem in the workplace and in talent acquisition circles. It is going to become even more foolish going forward because 
the, the demarcation of how successful someone is within your organization, particularly in the knowledge economy, is not going to be based on what they've done in the past. It's going to be based on their learning agility. Learning agility represents the willingness to learn plus the aptitude to learn. And, if, and this is a whole framework. You can go research, right? So learning agility is going to be what organizations that are future facing are actually going to be hiring for. How fast can you learn new things and how much desire do you have to learn new things? Because if I hire you based on what you have done and that thing becomes obsolete in the next 18 months and you're not a good learner, then you're not that useful for the organization, right? So switching towards learning agility rather than past precedent will be a smart employer pivot. Another thing that employers can expect in the whole skill extinction uh, aspect of the future of work is just to expect higher numbers of turnover. Turnover rates have been increasing in the knowledge economy for several years now. They will continue to increase because what's going to happen for workers is that we are going to become empowered by changing jobs. Because if you think about your own career, for those of you who are you know, further along in your career trajectories, the times you learn the most are oftentimes when you've got a new role. And so new roles uh, stretch you and they cause you to grow. And so workers that stay in one role for five or six years will actually flatten out their own growth Whereas workers that change jobs more frequently will keep themselves on the edge of their learning curve. So workers will be able to reskill faster by changing jobs more frequently. I'm not saying this is perfect. I'm not saying I endorse it. I'm describing the way the political economy will lend itself to increase volatility in the labor market. So employee, employers need to expect greater turnover and build onboarding and replacement systems that aren't flat-footed the way that many companies are right now, where when someone leaves, we go, oh my gosh, they left. We should have done succession planning. We don't actually have anybody that can take their role, right? So when you start to expect turnover, it shifts your human resources focus into succession planning, business continuity planning in different kinds of ways that employers need to adjust to. On the flip side, employees need to develop our learning agility. Remember, your learning agility is your willingness to learn combined with your aptitude to learn. There's a whole evolving science out there around learning agility that as an, if, you're, if you're sitting here thinking, okay, I want to invest in that capacity. I want to become someone who has great learning agility. Awesome. This is something definitely you're going to want to focus on to stay relevant in the future of work. And then finally, employees need to affect a mindset shift. And this isn't going to be easy to do. I know I struggle around having uh, maybe legacy mindsets that need to be challenged and disrupted. But the idea that you're going to have a 20-year career plan, I still talk to mentees who are, who are earlier than me. They reach out over LinkedIn. They say, hey, can we have a meeting? I want to talk to you about my 20-year career plan. There's no such thing as a 20-year career plan. If you take in the reality of VUCA, that things are volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous, you need a two to three year plan <laughs> because anything beyond that is not bankable. The, the conditions are going to change in ways that don't support long-term planning. So rather than trying to plan in 20-year arcs, plan in two to three-year arcs. Rather than focusing on job security, which is about what you're doing in the role you're in right now, focus on career security, which is about your learning agility and your ability to reinvent yourself over and over and over again. And these are the things that are showing up in the literature around the future of work that will empower the worker to do, to do their best work going forward. All right, last piece here, and I'm going to move through this one pretty quickly. This is 
the last dimension of the future of work that I want to focus on is well-being. So well-being is it's really uh, largely the same as wellness, but it's just, it seems to be more popular of a term right now. And wellness and well-being uh, represent the multiple dimensions of the human experience that need to be optimized if people are going to be healthy and to flourish. And when you look at questions of well-being and the future of work, companies um, need to be attuned to burnout. Burnout is a huge threat to well-being. A survey that happened in 2021 by the job site Indeed, it gets referenced a lot. So I'm sharing with you, it's not meant to be comprehensive. It's only a survey of 1,500 workers. So there's only so much you can really generalize from that. But a lot of other news stories reference this study. So it, it, it holds a certain amount of weight in the discourse right now. And the reason they reference this study is because there are increasing reports of feelings of burnout across every demographic group in the workforce right now, from baby boomers to Gen X to millennials to Gen Z, everybody is feeling burned out. And I think if you think about your own experience, you may be feeling a little bit burned out as well, right? I think a lot of folks can resonate with the last 18 months having been super, super hard. The future of work and companies need to be paying attention to this. On the other side, companies at the same time have been expanding their wellness offerings from maybe only having an employee assistance program or an EAP to adding much more robust counseling support in their health insurance plans, or maybe adding a discount for a gym membership for physical well-being, or maybe adding financial coaching and financial counseling services that they didn't historically have, or maybe adding some kind of volunteer or philanthropic effort that allows their employees to give back and feel better about the, the work they're doing at the company and outside of the company. These are what forward-thinking companies are doing. But the DEI side of this is important to pay attention to because the research going all the way back, this is, this is one of the seminal research studies on burnout from 2012. The six main causes of, of burnout are unsustainable workload, perceived lack of control, insufficient rewards for effort, a lack of a supportive community at work, lack of fairness in decision-making at work, and mismatched values and skills. Only two of these six factors are really locatable with the employee themselves. And what I want to do is call out for employers that in the face of massive burnout, we tend to invest in wellness programs that displace the burden of wellness onto the employee. Here's a free meditation app. To be a little bit glib about this, here's a free meditation app. Don't feel burned out. But if you look back at the top six reasons for burnout, four of them are organizational, structural, and cultural factors that are in the employer's control. So going forward, as we think about investing in equity in the well-being space, companies that want to be forward-thinking in equity and in wellness really need to think beyond expanding benefits to offer more and more resources to employees, but actually to say, what is it about our workplace culture that is burning out our team members? What is it about the managerial culture? What is it about workload distribution? What can we actually measure? And the third bullet under employers says to measure more factors, right? So one of the things like I do at my organization is we actually measure for fairness in decision-making. We measure for voice, how much people feel like they can contribute to decisions that affect their work reality, because these are factors that are just as important as net promoter score or belonging. Almost every company is paying attention to net promoter score and belonging. Way fewer companies are paying attention to factors like fairness or decision-making. 
But those are actually factors that you can go after to affect the burnout conditions that cannot be alleviated simply by adding another meditation app in your resources for your employees. And I find this to be a, a through line for people that care about DE&I is that we tend to think about self-care last and we tend to want to show up for others and show up for the cause and show up for the issues. But going forward with the reality of, of everything I've talked about, hybrid work, skill obsolescence and skill extinction, uh, the challenges, the unique challenges to wellness in the, in, uh, this, in the future of work, we've got to, those of us who are trying to shape the transformation for on behalf of marginalized and vulnerable communities, self-care and boundaries have to be part of what we're investing in. I see my investment in boundaries and self-care as part of my workforce strategy, as part of how I manage my career. And the other thing I would recommend to folks thinking about wellness and their own life, and this is, this is really, uh, I found this to be a real revelation a couple of months ago. There was a, a Harvard Business Review piece on switching costs. And I'd never heard of this framing before, but switching costs are the behavioral psychology term for the drain it takes on your brain to move between different kinds of tasks during the workday. And one of the things that's happened that they're studying right now is that employees who are working in hybrid, the, the switching costs of their work have skyrocketed because of the way in which you'll be on a Zoom meeting, you'll be answering email and Slack at the same time, your family is texting you. And all of this requires splitting our brain in ways that when you went to the office and you walked into a conference room and you sat down and you had a meeting and it, it's rude during the meeting to be on your phone or answering Slack or email, so you can't, you were monotasking or you were closer to monotasking in the former mode of work. Hybrid work creates slippage towards a multitasking that is heralded in our society, but our brains and the neuroscience doesn't actually support. So there's tremendous drain on your body and your well-being from switching costs. And part of the advice is to start to chunk up your day to try and monotask a little bit more to say, okay, I'm going to set up this next two or three hours where I'm going to be in teleconferencing meetings. I'm going to be doing back-to-back -back Zoom meetings because that's one way of using my brain and my spirit. Then I'm going to have a 15-minute break where I walk around. Then I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do email and Slack and textual communication for 60 minutes. And then I'm going to walk around for 15 minutes. Then I'm going to do some more Zoom meetings, right? We, most of us don't structure our calendar like this, but I think the future of work and the future of hybrid work will call on us to do this if we want to fight against burnout. I just want to end with a little bit of, of gratitude. It can be so overwhelming to think about everything that I've shared today and to recognize and acknowledge that everything I've shared today is really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the transformation we're living through. So I wanted to give you just one tangible, if you, if you remember nothing else I've said, you can serve as an equity anchor in any future of work discussion, whether you're an employer or an employee, a student or a teacher, by asking different kinds of questions. These are questions that you can ask that will engender a different kind of a discussion that may edge your organization towards equity. The question, who is this current policy or system designed for? It's a great equity question, right? Because a lot of times we want, to, we want to think that systems and policies are identity neutral. They're not. They're designed for some mythical normative user in mind. And that person oftentimes has a lot of privilege. What does the outcome data tell us about how this group is doing, right? That's an equity anchor question. Let's look at the outcome data to assess whether the system is serving everybody well. 
at the bottom, what policy or system may be producing this outcome gap rather than just individual action? So if you're in a room and everybody's saying, you know, this group is lagging behind, I wonder what's wrong with them. You can serve as an equity anchor by saying, well, let's also look at the conditions, the structures and the policies and the environments that may be producing that inequity rather than just focusing on individual action. So this is uh, meant to be a short illustration of what it means to serve as an equity anchor, to be the person that asks the question around systems, that asks the questions around how marginalized and vulnerable people are affected by those systems and reminds us that we can take action, differential action in order to optimize conditions for people in complex systems. Thank you so much for hanging in there for this wild ride through the future of work. I have so, so much hope even though I shared some tough things, I have hope that together as people who care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, that we can get in there and roll up our sleeves and shape the future of work so that it serves marginalized and vulnerable people and communities better than it does today. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.